you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our podcast, please consider helping out the show by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. On today's episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, we are going to continue our rewatch of season one of The Curse of Oak Island, and today we are up to episode three called Voices from the Grave. The episode originally aired January 19th, 2014 on the History Channel, and it was almost entirely based, at least one way or another, around the swamp. So rather than do our sort of usual project-by-project format that I use for these episode reviews... Since there really is only one project shown here, let's do this episode sort of in chronological order as it, you know, kind of as it airs, as close to scene by scene as we really possibly can. The episode opens in Dan Blankenship's kitchen with Marty and Rick Lagina and Craig Tester, along with Dave and Dan Blankenship. They're sort of sitting and milling around the table. At this time, this was really it, right? This was what the show would now refer to as the Fellowship of the Dig. Now, sure, some of these guys brought a couple of their kids on to help them out, you know, with the dirty work, right? We'll hear about that in a bit. But back then, these guys, you know, who are now considered the fellow part of the fellowship, they were really just kids, right? And it was these five older guys, Craig, Dave, Rick, Marty, and Dan, who were the decision makers in all this. Now, the discussion they're having is about the swamp, which, like I said, is all we really talk about in this episode. There is hardly a mention or even a fleeting image of the money pit here in this episode at all. How often can we say that about the show these days, right? Not very often. There's almost always some other project at least alluded to at some point. But back then, there weren't the amount of people on the island there are now. There weren't enough people involved to have some of them doing something over in the swamp and some of them in the money pit and some of them somewhere else. There's just these five to ten people. That's really all there is. Craig Tester shows Dan Blankenship an aerial photo of the swamp, and Dan is pointing out the location of things, that, you know, kind of everything that was found in the swamp over the years that he knows of. Now, this scene makes me think of a couple of things. One is this older image of the swamp. It really is a fascinating um, look at how the swamp, how this compares to the swamp now in 2022. Even in these early days, right, before the drainings, the bulldozers, and the excavators, the swamp really does appear to be weirdly triangular. You know, it's just cool to see that again, especially in this early context, because this is before all the work is being done. Now you look at it, you see a lot of dirt, you see a lot of, uh, you know, dead vegetation and, you know, a lot of paths being carved out and the just the kind of weird natural triangular look to it is kind of hidden a bit and it's looks a little bit more um sort of manipulated here you're getting a look at something that is clearly not as manipulated although still manipulated it's important to understand that that road wasn't there this 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 swamp is not the way it would look if this um if this island was kept in its natural state its natural pre-20th century state so it's important to keep that all in mind Okay, um, as this the scene also kind of shows us um, just how much when we look at this, just how much Dan Blankenship meant to the show and to the dig team. 
he really was an amazing fountain of information as he picks up this thing and just starts pointing out, oh, I was over here in this, uh, you know, um, he knows the island so well. He knows the history of the dig so well. And this scene that we see here really kind of helps us to remember just how valuable and his knowledge and his experience was to the Laginas. Man, I miss Dan. I really do. Marty asks Dan if he thinks the swamp is actually man-made and Dan answers yes. Now, that's exactly what I would expect Dan to say. But it's Marty's kind of subsequent response that's kind of a little bit of a head scratcher to me. He responds, and, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, it's not an exact quote, but he responds that the only reason that anybody would go through the trouble of creating a swamp would be then to hide something in it. Do you find this response as peculiar as I do? I mean, what is he basing that conclusion on? You know, that's the only possible reason? <laughs> really? You, can't the swamp be the result of some sort of human intervention like the building of a road and yet not be created specifically to hide something? Because not for nothing, but just off the top of my head, I can think of about a dozen far easier, less smelly and messy ways to hide something than building a giant stinky swamp that are just as effective, right? And I have to ask, does Marty know of any examples throughout history where someone built the swamp to hide something in order to base this on? I mean, you would think he would have something like that in his head to say, well, it's the only reason why you would build a swamp. And for that matter, guys, you listening, do you know of any examples of this? I don't know of any, but I'm absolutely asking you. If there is, let me know. I'm, I'm very curious about that. Correct me if I'm wrong. But this seems to be quite a bit of a stretch to me to make this conclusion. Anyway, let's move on to the next scene. The meeting breaks up and the guys head out to the swamp. We see Rick, Marty, uh, and Dave Blankenship along with Peter Fernetti and Alex Lagina. Now, they are there to prepare the swamp to be drained. And here is another big difference from then until now, right? What they start doing is chopping down trees and brush just so they can clear a place to run the pumps and hoses into the swamp. When was the last time we saw that much vegetation here in and around the swamp? I mean, all over this season, we can see the effects the Laginas and their search have had on the physical makeup of the island because we see what it was like before that, right? And this is just another big example of that. The narrative then starts talking about the dangers of deadly gas in the swamp, specifically hydrogen sulfide. Now, we're going to hear a lot about this during this episode. This all kind of relates to, to what this episode is really all about. And it uh, makes me think of how even with all the work we have seen in the swamp in the years since this episode aired, just how little we now hear and that we have heard over the past few years about these dangers that I would imagine are still present in some way, shape, or form. I wonder why that is. I'm not saying that people are um, being cavaliering or not being careful or something. I'm just curious why these. this is something we don't hear about. I know why we hear about it in this one, and you're going to get to that in a second, but uh, I'm just curious if these dangers still exist in their minds. They just don't want to talk about it anymore. Now, having said all that, this is also the first example of Prometheus and the showrunners really leaning in on the themes of the mysterious and dangerous, and also, I suppose supernatural and paranormal. Now, we'll see this throughout this first season, and no more so than in this episode. Just like we saw in the first couple of episodes, there is some kind of like ominous music and also a few really quite bizarre B-roll footage of crows flying away from tree branches and these weird skull images and those kinds of things. Again, it's supposed to all, it's, it's all supposed to make us feel kind of creeped out as they talk about the dangers of natural gas in the swamp. And I 
somehow, I suppose, subconsciously, they're trying to make this connection between these dangers and a curse or some sort of supernatural benevolent or malevolent spirit. Um, Not sure what the paranormal or even what a crow has to do with natural occurring gases in the swamp, but be that as it may, they're really trying, um, they're really, (laughs) how do I put this? They're really trying to set up this idea that Oak Island might indeed be a haunted island. And we're going to see why they're doing that at the end of the episode when it all pays off, but it doesn't really pay off, but you'll, you'll see what I mean. Now, with this whole idea of creepy dangers in mind, we see Alex and Peter nearly get hit by a falling tree limb as they walk what looks like a pump uh, across the area where Dave and Rick are working the chainsaws. Now, the editing makes it look like they barely escaped with their lives. You know, they almost were crushed by a giant falling tree. Now, I'm not sure from looking at it again and again that this is really the case as the editing is a bit unclear on that, but the response is nothing more than sort of a slightly annoyed Uncle Rick and a lot of inferring that this actually that that what a, that this actually happened because the island is cursed. I mean, if it was cursed, the curse isn't very efficient because, you know, just a, a yell got them to safety. But I think it probably happened because these two kids weren't really paying attention as kids are wont to do, right? And probably haven't spent a lot of time around people cutting down trees with chainsaws in their lives. Uh, Now, I haven't done that either. I haven't spent a lot of time doing that, but I do know it's kind of on the guy with the chainsaw who knows what direction he's trying to make the tree fall to sort of clear the area, you know, and it's not on a swamp. It's sort of on the mistakes of the two older guys who are spending their time now yelling at the other two guys for walking through the area. I think uh, the blame is good all around, and my thought is hard hats, maybe hard hats for the for the young guys. Anyway, but let's go back to the narration, indeed, pushing a curse narrative here, and that continues as uh, Robert Clotworthy, the narrator, then recaps all of the deaths that have occurred on Oak Island over the centuries as a result of the treasure hunt. It's during this section of the narration where we get to hear the first of two real whoppers. <laughs> We're going to be subject to today in the narration two real narration doozies uh, when the writers and Clotworthy proclaims after retelling the story of the first two deaths on Oak Island back in the 19th century that, quote, the island had its second taste of blood and it wouldn't be long before it wanted more, unquote. Did you like how I did that creepy voice? Uh, You see, folks, this is why I always tell you. When I receive complaints and complaints about the narration that I'm just kind of used to this stuff by now, because we've been listening to this for years and years from right, right from the get go. Right. We've been listening to this. But let me also just say with regards to this little narration here, which is the reason why I bring it up more so than the silly nature of it. This kind of thing is how do I put it kind of a turn off to me. I mentioned Uh, I I like the mentioning of those who lost their lives on Oak Island and honoring them as best we can. But the way the show kind of uses their memories here as some sort of pawn in this little silly paranormal game they're playing kind of irritates me a little bit. Listen, I'm not going to make too big a deal about this because I think they've learned their lesson on this kind of thing. And uh, we don't really see it much anymore. So I don't want to go on and on about season one. They have learned this. Again, the show is pushing the idea of a curse. And after we come back from this little break, we're going to learn a little bit more as to why.
All right. As the show comes back from the commercial break, we see Rick and some of the team meeting in Dave Blankenship's dining room, looking over some of Fred Nolan's old maps of the swamp. Two things come to mind here. One, I miss these house scenes, right? I really miss the sort of genuine quality of it. Uh, Oak Island in these days seems more like a place than a setting for a show or for a like a, you know, now it almost looks like a construction area, right? When back then it really looked like, you know, like a, a coastal town in the North Atlantic, just like every other. Um, and the other thing that this makes me think of is, I was curious watching this, that this is supposedly before what one would call the Nolan Blankenship thaw, right? This is when Fred and Dan were still not on speaking terms at all with each other. So it makes me wonder where they got these maps, but they don't really say, and you know, I'm sure they didn't sneak into his house and steal them. I'm just saying, I was just curious of the timeline and all this. Anyway, while looking over these maps, Rick receives a call from someone named Lee Lamb. She is the eldest daughter of Robert and Mildred Restall. Who, lead the, who led the Oak Island search, I'm sorry, uh, from 1959 until Robert's untimely death in 1965, which we're going to talk about a lot here in just a second. Lee says uh, that she is in town and that she'd like to stop by and visit the island. Now, before Miss Lamb arrives on the, on the island, the show does a great job here of telling you about the Restalls and how the family came to Oak Island. But let me just tell you a few things more on the subject, just give you a little bit more detail, dive down a little bit more. As honestly, their story, the entire family, is one of the most compelling in the entire 225-year history of the Oak Island treasure hunt. And I know I've spoke about it before, but I never miss an opportunity to talk about it because it really fascinates me. Robert and Mildred Restall were incredibly interesting people uh, and not exactly the kind of people you would imagine would become Oak Island treasure hunters. <laughs> Robert was like a plumber and a, or a pipe fitter or something like that. And he was born in Toronto in 1905. He had this love for motorcycle racing and soon also for what I think one would call like motorcycle stunt riding, right? He traveled throughout the country and Europe performing stunts with his brothers or brother and a couple of brothers, I think, when when he met his soon-to-be wife, Mildred, in England, and she was a dancer, and also kind of like, you know, in the same sort of entertainment field of almost like carnival stuff. Uh, Mildred learned to ride a motorcycle very quickly, something not a lot of women did back then, especially stunt riding. And soon the couple were working together, traveling across Europe, performing at, you know, things that are like carnivals and that kind of stuff. They developed something called the Globe of Death, uh, which needs to be seen to be believed. And the show gives us some great old footage. There's at least a couple of old uh, 16 mil or 8 millimeter reels of, of this Globe of Death. It is incredibly nuts, incredibly crazy, and really um, should be one of the things that give you an insight into what Robert and Mildred Restall were like. Now... Their stunt show was so popular in Europe that the Restalls became sort of like big stars in Germany. But it was the rise of the Nazi party that convinced Robert and Mildred to pack up their show and, uh, and leave Germany, eventually ending up back in Robert's home country of Canada and bringing their globe of death along for the ride um, throughout the country. And even after the birth of their children, the couple continued to tour with the globe of death um, 
I just like saying the globe of death until eventually they decided at some point in time um, to settle down and, uh, you know, raise their kids in sort of a less harrowing situation, I guess. That is until Robert learned about the Oak Island mystery and then spent the next five years or so trying to convince Mel Chapel, who was the owner back then of the island, to allow him to dig on the island. He finally got his chance in 1959. As we see Lee Lamb arriving on the island, we get our second narration whopper of the episode. <laughs> this is, and honestly, folks, in this one here, I think you're going to trouble, you're going to struggle to find a worse example of exaggerated writing for the narration throughout the entire history of the Curse of Oak Island than this one you're about to hear here. Clotworthy points out how Rick and Dan Blankenship both became interested in the Oak Island mystery by the same Reader's Digest article, the same article you've all heard about millions of times before. Uh, and it happened to also be published right after the Restall tragedy. Clotworth then says, and hang on, folks, this is a good one, quote, a coincidence? Or could it be the Oak Island curse identifies and then lures its victims in advance? <laughs> I mean, come on, guys. If you think the narration has gotten worse or is worse now than it ever was, you're come on, you're wrong. These crazy narrations have been part of this mainstay of this show forever, right? And look at look at what he says here. You know, we're we're supposed to believe that the island is lured Rick and Dan in. They're eventually going to die or something. I, I have no idea. Lee Lamb is not only the daughter of Robert and Mildred Restall, but she's also the author of one of the absolute best books on Oak Island you will ever read. It's called The Oak Island Obsession and tells the story of her family and her um, father and brother's time treasure hunting on Oak Island. Now, the show does a great job of explaining what happened during what we now call the Restall tragedy. But I think just to show you how good this book is, I'm going to read to you um, the part of of uh, Miss Lamb's book on this, okay? She writes, while the bulldozer was digging a trench on the beach on August 17th, Robert Dunfield watched and talked to Carl Grazer, who was there on one of the many impromptu visits to see progress of the work. Bobby was gathering brush with three workmen. It was time for Dad to change out of his work clothes and head for the mainland before the bank closed at 3 p.m. Dad took one last look down into the latest shaft to see how the pumping was coming along. Suddenly, he tumbled in. Seeing him, Bobby dropped the brushes in his hand and raced to Dad's aid. As Bobby started down the ladder inside the hole, he too fell. Carl Grazer was right behind him, rushing to help. But when he started down the ladder, he too fell victim to whatever had affected Dad and Bobby. Cyril Hiltz, one of the young men working to clear brush with Bobby, was next down the hole. His, co his cousin, Andrew DeMont, was right behind him. Like the others before him, while descending the ladder in hopes of rescue, DeMont tumbled into the shaft. Leonard Kaiser followed and fell. They must have been stacked like cordwood. Answering calls for help, Edward White, a Buffalo, New York firefighter, uh, visiting the island with his family, tied a handkerchief around his face and was lowered down into the hole despite his wife begging him not to go down the shaft. Kaiser, the last to enter the shaft, had fallen across the beam that kept him out of the water. Ed White got a rope around him and rescuers at the surface pulled Kaiser out. The putrid stench emanating from the slimy water at the bottom of the shaft was overwhelming and White found himself struggling to maintain consciousness. Nevertheless, he managed to untangle DeMont from the, from the struts, bracing the cribbing, and bring him up and out of the hole. White realized it was hopeless 
to try and go back for more. I mean, that's what happened. It's an incredible story. It's a harrowing tale. And this is what Lee Lamb had to deal with. Now, joining Lee in this scene is the aforementioned Andrew DeMont, the same Andrew DeMont who was saved by Ed White from suffering the same fate as the rest of all men in 1965. He is the last living survivor of the tragedy, and his appearance on the show is wonderful to see and very, very emotional. I mean, despite my belly aching over the narration, this really is a phenomenal episode of television, and this is one of the reasons here, right? We get a scene uh, where Lee Lamb talks about the curse and even mentions what I think she refers to as a malevolent spirit on the island. I'm not sure if she felt that way before the tragedy, but one can certainly understand why she would feel that way now. I think it's also interesting that during this segment, the narration does a very good job of reframing the Restalls, talking about their confidence and their risk-taking nature, which is what I was hinting to before with the globe of death. It's an interesting juxtaposition because it would certainly seem to me that these things that they're mentioning, this risk-taking nature, would be a better place to search for clues as to why this tragedy might have happened rather than some kind of malevolent spirit. Lamb and DeMont go with Rick down to see um, a monument erected by Dan Blankenship to commemorate those who died in this tragedy. DeMont's retelling is emotional and it's riveting. Um, If you haven't watched this episode in a while, go and watch it again. This scene alone is worth the time it takes to, to turn this on and watch it. It's an incredibly powerful scene. Now, after commercial break, Rick and Lee are shown coming out of the galley restaurant. This is a beautiful little seaside place, which I actually think isn't there anymore. And the two sit down on a waterfront deck to chat. Lee gives Rick a map uh, that her brother uh, Bobby drew of Oak Island, which apparently he made to maybe show potential investors where things are on the island. And she says it's made to scale and all that. She also has her brother's journals with her. These are diaries that Bobby kept for every single day he was on Oak Island. And it's part, um, she leans on this a lot in the book. So you really get a fascinating look at this in the book. It's amazing and haunting to see that uh, Bobby had written that date in his journal, August 17th, 1965, but didn't live long enough to actually write down what happened that day. During the scene, the narration talks a lot about the history of the Restall's treasure hunt, the projects they undertook, and the things they found. They mention the 1704 stone, which we talked about a lot in this podcast before, and they also mention a couple of other things worth discussing, including the Jack Adams mystery box. It's something we don't hear a lot about, but just so you know, Jack Adams was a caretaker on Oak Island in the 1930s, decades before the Restalls were there. Um, Adams was also very close friends with Mel Chapel, who was the owner of the money pit and the guy who, like I said earlier, granted the Restalls permission to dig. During this time, um, during his time on the island, Adams found what he was convinced was perhaps maybe a wooden box in the mud along the edge of the swamp, although he didn't actually find the box. He just sort of probed with it or probed and, and hit it. Chapel asked the Restalls in the 1960s as a favor to essentially stop everything they were working on and search for this box for his friend Jack, which they did to no avail. The Adams mystery box remains just that (laughs) to this day, a mystery. Nobody has seen or found anything since. But with all the wood pieces in the swamp that we've seen in the excavation, one kind of can figure out what he might have been hitting, right? They also talk about the spiral tunnel which we've also mentioned uh, recently on the podcast. Just let me uh, give you the nickel version of that because we've talked about it recently here. Um, In 1962, the Restalls thought they found a spiral tunnel leading from the bottom of the money pit, like around the 104-foot mark. And if I'm not mistaken, 
This is what they were focused on when the tragedy occurred, bringing their work to a halt. Now, after the Restalls left the island, Robert Dunfield, who you hear was also on the island on the day of the tragedy, was next to head up the dig as he was angling for that even then. And his work likely caused the destruction of whatever it was the Restalls thought they had found. There was also a lot of bad blood between Mildred Restall after Robert's passing and uh, and Robert Dunfield after all this had gone. There was a lot of bad blood between the two of them, which Lee Lamb talks about in her book. But that's another story for another day. Before this conversation ends and the show goes to a commercial break, Lee says she wants to give Rick a little advice. Now, this entire scene, I hate to say it like this, but this entire scene is really very poorly edited and they have a very hard time figuring out what it is she was trying to say, what the advice really was. But I think I got an idea. Despite the attempts by the editors to turn what she was trying to say into something about curses, we do hear Lee Lamb say right at the top, quote, I'm afraid you'll get stuck there, which I think is really the point of what she was trying to say, what she was trying to tell Rick. Remember, this is very early in Rick's time on the island. And it seems to me that Lee Lamb, who is victim of not the curse of Oak Island, but a victim of what she herself calls the Oak Island obsession, right? She she has a better word for it. Keep that in mind. She seems to be afraid that Rick will become the next obsessed person, the next person consumed by the search, like so many before him, including Lee's own father and brother. It reminds me of the coda of her book where she writes this. Oak Island had her way with my father. He was so enthralled to his treasure hunting dream that he lost sight of everything else, even the welfare of his family. All that mattered was the quest. By the end, he had come to believe that his very worth as a human being could be measured only by conquering the island. It is a tragedy that his single-minded pursuit of the treasure led to his death on the island on August 17, 1965. But it is even more tragic that other innocent lives were taken with him. Bobby, faithful, rushing to his father's aid. Carl Grazer, selfless to the end. An intelligent, capable, good man, much needed by his wife and two daughters. And Cyril Hiltz, a 16-year-old, barely at the brink of manhood, who left, his bro- left behind his mother and father, his sister and brother. Gordon, who was working with him on the island that faithful day, was his brother. And his fiancée, Marjorie DeMont. What a terrible waste. You see, Lee wasn't concerned about curses. The curse of Oak Island, to her, was the way it encaptured these treasure hunters, the way it consumed them and caused them to obsess to a point where is what their lives were all about. And that is what she didn't want to see happen to Rick Lagina. Has it happened? Yeah, I'll let you guys be the judge. Rick gets all emotional as the conversation ends reminding us all why and how much we love this guy and why we're all fans of this show, right? Because Rick is truly a very genuine guy. And it comes out here, especially even in this very early episode. Now, as we come back from a commercial break, the team is heading back down to the swamp to begin their pumping project. I like saying that too. As they are laying out the hoses and positioning these pumps, Dave Blankenship makes a few sort of borderline inappropriate jokes about the end of a hose. I mean, how much do we miss Dave? Come on, really. 
Uh, everyone thinks Gary Drayton is the comic relief, and nowadays he is, but it was Dave who was the original OG on that uh, in that role and probably did it better, right? Because he wasn't even trying to be funny. This is just how he was. Uh, we see Dan Henske joining the team down at the swamp, which leads the narration to talk for a while about Dan's paranormal experiences while on the island. This is a big theme here in this first season. Uh, Dan has had a few of these stories to tell over the years, and they talk a lot about these experiences throughout this season. In this episode, they tell the story about how one night on Oak Island, Dan claims to have been possessed by the spirit of a priest who had his throat cut, and Dan was made to feel as if he was dying along with that priest. Now, like I said, uh, Dan has a few of these quote-unquote episodes over the years in the island, episodes which I have heard characterized by others as something like nervous breakdowns. Um, We mentioned this other one uh, a bit in the season two rewatch, or I'm sorry, the episode two rewatch, but let me just expand on it a bit here. Uh, here, The other one that they're talking about, Dan's time working on the island with the Blankenships ended in 1995 when um, on his last night, um, Dan at the time was living in what can only be described as a small shack, like a tool shack over by the money pit. And in that last night, Dan says that he saw the malevolent ghosts of Oak Island's original treasure depositors sort of flying out of the money pit or exploding out of the money pit. I forget the word he uses, uh, which scared him so much that he fled the island in a total panic. Um, But he first had time to take all of his clothes off and swim naked to the mainland, carrying only with him a few things he took from his shack, a globe, a mathematics textbook, and a copy of the book Elvis and Me by Priscilla Presley. Um, Henske would later spend time in a local psychiatric hospital recovering from from these things. Um, Now, whether you believe the paranormal was the cause of these episodes or not, the fact that Dan is even back on the island working with the Laginas is simply amazing to me when it comes right down to it, right? I mean, if that stuff happened to me, folks... I'm pretty sure the next island I would spend my time on would have palm trees and beautiful white sand beaches and someone delivering frozen drinks to me with umbrellas in them, right? I don't think I'd go back to the scene. There is also another little piece of narration worth mentioning here quickly. Clotworthy talks about how Daniel McGinnis and his friends rode over to the island that faithful night in the summer of 1795 to actually investigate strange lights coming from the island and that those lights are what caused them to find the money pit. The show pushes this tall tale, less so, but still, even now they do. And uh, we've discussed over and over again how this story can't possibly be true. But again, the show is pushing a narrative here right from the very beginning of the episode, right? A narrative that involves ghosts and evil spirits, not only with creepy music and peculiar B-roll footage of crows and skulls, but also with Dan Henske and to some extent the rest alls. And that's the part that kind of bugs me a bit. And soon we get the payoff as uh, we see a team of paranormal investigators coming to the island to meet with the guys. Remember back in 2014, we were really in the height of, or sort of towards the end of the height of, a run of really popular paranormal investigation shows, shows like Ghost Hunters and dozens of others from all over cable television. Um, And this team we see here is very much one in that sort of Ghost Hunters taps style of organization from what I can tell. There's a lot of talk in the room about creepy feelings and strange noises and those sorts of things. Uh, 
These investigators are going to use the same kinds of investigative tools made popular in all those quote-unquote reality shows <laughs> that we've seen on television about paranormal investigation. Listen, if this is your kind of thing, if you like this kind of stuff, I apologize in advance for what I'm about to say. But I find many of these methods they use here and that they use throughout this run of paranormal investigation on television to be really useless uh, for achieving what anyone would hope to find in an actual serious investigation. And some of them are just even plain silly, honestly, if you get down to it. Now, in most of these shows, they kind of don't explain to you everything that this that these tools are about, uh, but it doesn't take more than a Google search to kind of learn more about them. And if, again, if you disagree, I apologize, but I, I just don't think it's worth spending too much time on this. If you look at Marty's face during these nighttime scenes, I think we can all say that uh, he pretty much feels the same way I do with this stuff. <laughs> The episode ends with a meeting in the original war room, which, if I'm not mistaken, was located inside Dan Blankenship's house at the time. They would later bring in a new separate building to house the war room, but that's a few years down the road yet. There's a lot of talk here about the dangers of natural gas again in the swamp. Marty and Craig being in the oil and gas business, they know quite a bit about these dangers. And again, it once again kind of makes me think um, of how we seem to never really discuss this danger anymore when working in the swamp. Because over the years, we've seen not only excavators and bulldozers, but people down on hands and knees digging in with picks and trowels, right, in the mud. And none of them wearing any what we would call protective gear for any such thing. I wonder why that is. I'm not saying they're ignoring safety protocols. Let me just point that out again. I'm just curious why the change in procedure and why the change in direction. Uh, uh, do they know now that the that the um, that there really isn't any safety concern, and and why do they know that? I'm just curious. As the show comes to a conclusion, the team is heading back down to finally begin draining the swamp. Rick jumps chest deep into freezing, disgusting, and putrid water, and then the pumps begin, and the credits start to roll. Now, let me just say as we conclude this podcast that even though I spend a lot of time criticizing the show, and especially its narration writing here, I really think, all things considered, this was a fantastic hour of television. And we can really see in this episode why the show became so popular in the years to come, right? Sure, I find the paranormal stuff a little, uh, what's the word, far-fetched, maybe even a little manufactured is probably a better way to put it. But I know many people don't feel the same way about this. But even so, when you add these elements to the history of the dig and the possibilities behind the origins of the mystery, you really see why we all grew to love this show and became such big fans of the Oak Island mystery, right? And if nothing else, I can distinctly remember watching this episode and while watching it going on my computer and ordering Lee Lamb's book. And again, folks, if you are a fan of the show and the mystery and haven't read her book, really, really should. It's such a compelling and emotional read, and it covers that element of Oak Island treasure hunting that just so rarely gets talked about in any of these shows. The addiction, the all-consuming nature, and often detrimental effects that these kinds of hunts, not just Oak Island, there's many of them, these kind of hunts have on those who spend and oftentimes lose their lives in pursuit of whatever it is that they are convinced was just out of their reach even if there isn't a lot of evidence to, to make them think that way. So let's just wrap up the paranormal stuff here, right? Is the curse real? I get that question asked all the time. Is it really a thing? Is there an actual history behind the curse? The short answer is no. And as far as I can tell, the producers pretty much made it up. 
Is it possible they heard someone talk about something like this first somewhere along the line? Sure. Listen, for decades, the Oak Island mystery was considered a pirate hunt, right? A hunt for pirate treasure. And with pirate treasure, there always comes some kind of curse. I mean, even in the movies and all the movies, right? But a curse is not something that anyone really talked about in context of Oak Island before the Restall tragedy, right? And we can sort of follow the origin story there. After the or, after the Restalls um, lost their lives and the people involved, there were now six people in the history of the dig who died while actually working in an active treasure hunt role. We all know that seven is a popular number for these things. So you can see why the curse story would be invented after the tragedy. Whether Prometheus invented it or not, we can't really say for sure, but they certainly pushed it a lot more than it ever was. I, I, I'd say uh, probably at the very least, they consciously made a way bigger deal about it than anyone else involved in the treasure hunt ever had. Let me put it another way. I don't think Dan Blankenship or Fred Nolan believed or in or even knew about or worried about a curse. But you can see here in this episode why they pushed this, why they kind of made this all up, right? We always talk about how the producers are in love with the Knights Templar, obsessed with it, really, and clearly praying every day for something found that relates to the Templars. But that's not how the show started. As you can see here, it didn't begin as a show focused on finding Templar treasure. It was a show about finding cursed treasure. The intention was to appeal to those who watched these paranormal shows that were so popular and not towards the sort of Dan, you know, the sort of Da Vinci Code type crowd that it seems to appeal a little bit more towards now. I think nowadays we kind of forget that a bit. That's why the show is named what it is. If they started the show somewhere in season four or five, they probably would have found another name, you know, because they hardly even mention the paranormal stuff now, except for the, the beginning of the show, right? And just the, um, just the opening titles. But back in season one, it was one of the most important topics in the writer's arsenal. Anyway, that's going to do it for this episode of Digging Oak Island. Shameless plug time. Don't forget, Wednesday afternoons, 2 to 5 p.m. I'm DJing on WDVR-FM. You'll find me hosting a show called the Bourbon Street Bistro from 2 to 4 p.m., playing the music of New Orleans, and then from 4 to 5 p.m., hosting a show called Island Vibes, where I play music with a little tropical feel to it. You can listen by going to WDVR-FM or just telling Alexa to turn on WDVR. Or if you're in western New Jersey, eastern PA, we're on 89.7 FM or in, uh, in Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania on 90.5. And don't forget, you can really help out the show by becoming a patron. If you think this show is worth five bucks a month to you, head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. But also, if you would like to help out the podcast in another way, you don't need to donate money. Just go to Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your shows, leave us a five-star rating. Thanks to everyone who's done that already. I really appreciate it. It helps get more ears onto the podcast, and that's always better. So please, if you're available to do that, go ahead and do that now. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Digging Oak Island, and if you have any questions or comments directly that you want to send to me, you can do so via email, Island at gmail.com. Just keep in mind, if you do send me an email or a direct message on social media, I'll probably answer it here on a podcast. So if you don't want your message read aloud, just please make a note of that for me. Well, it's crown time. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.